0: So I think it's usually a better idea for me to listen to John Coltrane than to talk. (laughs) I uh, plan today, this one? Okay. Uh, I plan today to explore a little bit about what's wrong with the economy, but a lot about how to try to address this challenge and also how to uh, involve contemplative practice in that uh, sense of purpose. I think there's uh, probably a fair disclaimer at the start, which I'll momentarily go through, which is to show you how my own lenses are refracted by the experience of my childhood and how that probably uh, influences, certainly influences what I'm about to say. I thought this uh, poem kind of got to the essence of how people are feeling right now. Milo forbear to call him blessed that only boasts a large estate. Should all the treasures of the West meet and conspire to make him great. I know thy better thoughts, I know thy reason can't descend so low. Let a broad stream with golden sands through all his meadows roll. He's but a wretch with all his lands that wears a narrow soul. He swells amidst his wealthy store, and proudly poising what he weighs, in his own scale he fondly lays huge heaps of shining ore. He spreads the balance wide to hold his manners and his farms, and cheat the beams with loads of gold. He hugs between his arms. So might the plowboy climb a tree when Crocius mounts his throne, and both stand up and smile to see how long their shadows groan. Alas, how vain their fancies be to think that shape their own. Thus mingled still with wealth and state, Croesus himself can never know his true dimensions and his weight are inferior to their show. Were I so tall to reach the pole or grasp the ocean with my span, I must be measured by my soul. At the very first speech of the Institute for New Economic Thinking uh, in 2010 at Cambridge University in England, Tommaso Padiosciopa, the former finance minister and economy minister of Italy, gave a speech. Tommaso was a very pleasant and playful man. I remember once when I was in the investment business visiting him, and I said, Tommaso, why are you grinning? You're trying to control things that you can't possibly control. And he looked at me and he nodded and he smiled and he said, the only thing that gives me solace, Robert, is that if I admitted it, it would make it worse. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, in the next three pages, this is a slight excerpt from Tommaso's speech, which became later called the Per Jacobson Lecture, Uh, which was essentially a codified but repeat performance. And he talked about the process of politics and religion being linked but needing to be separated, and then how political and and economics now are quite separated. We'll put this on the website. I don't want to put you all through too much reading. But he draws us toward Isaac Watt's poem, by concluding that I'll let I'll let Paul McCartney do the work for a minute. So Crocius and the emperor, in his metaphor, are pitted against one another. And while in earlier times, government had stifled markets, 2007 and 8 marked a time when the das- disasters resulted from the power of wealth subjugating government. And the question of how we uh, exit from that was the challenge he posed. Now I'm going to go into a little bit of what essentially brought me to the table of the work that I do and so you can understand and therefore discount what I have to say. In my childhood, which was in Detroit, Michigan, I thought Charles Taylor speech this morning, in fact his whole career deserved a little shout out there, and so I brought Detroit's favorite rock band, The Who, and Pete Townsend singing The Seeker to your attention. <laughs> <laughs> my story actually became better known to me in 2016 when I was doing a conference in my hometown of Detroit. There's a famous story about Muhammad Ali as a 12-year-old boy riding a bicycle in Louisville, Kentucky. He goes to the home show with a friend. The home show is like a big civic experience and when he comes out, his new bicycle has been stolen. Muhammad Ali apparently was quite an animated, vivacious 12-year-old, no surprise to those of us that observed him later, and a woman, saw him inflamed and said, you must come with me to make a police report. He went down the basement into the home shows, the Coliseum it was called, and they made a report. And he said, "Oh, I'm just gonna whip that guy when I find the guy that stole my bike. And the police officer said, I run a boxing gym. I suggest you come work with me before you decide to go fight with somebody who stole your bike. This is how Muhammad Ali became a, a fighter. First the Golden Gloves champion, and then after that. So I'm in Detroit, and I'm looking around, and I'm doing a conference, and I decide I want to get a bike, and I want to go ride around the city and take pictures of street art. The bike you see, it's on the bottom there. People from a company called Shinola made a tribute to Muhammad Ali's bicycle story, and the photographer owned one, and he lent the bike to me as he ran around with me, and we made photographs. And when we stopped in front of this, uh, the central piece, it says, a star is born through immense pressure, and we've had our fair share. The beacon of light you see in the dark is our fair city rising from the night sky. I was very excited to use that as a background in my conference, and the photographer nailed me right then. He said, Muhammad Ali had his his life changed through the bicycle. What shook you off your moorings by growing up in Detroit? And I looked at him and I said, I lost my innocence. And we'll come back to what that means, but essentially it's related to a cauldron where labor management conflict was severe. One of my former baseball coaches got blown up with a labor leader, Walter Ruther, in an airplane. The 67 race riots and the disintegration of commerce in Detroit were essentially my formative experiences. Then I uh, was in a home where I had a father who was an atheist and quite vehement about it and a mother who was a devout Scottish Presbyterian. So I had to stay out of the way. When they'd start talking about the Holy Trinity, I'd say, well, I have no idea about this father and son stuff, but the Holy Ghost? Well, I know James Brown's feet, John Coltrane's horn, Jimi Hendrix's guitar, and Aretha Franklin's voice, so I know the Holy Ghost is present, and there's there's no question about that. That's a funny way of saying that music in that scene and in my childhood was a tremendous influence, and uh, my father was a physician, a professional jazz pianist. He had patients like Marvin Gaye, and my mother was a choral singer who worked in the development department of the Detroit Symphony. And then the other thing I did was a lot of sailing. As a young man, I was duct taping drawers while my parents sailed their boat. As I got older, I became very fond of people like Joseph Conrad and Herman Melville. The uh, character of Captain Ahab was very gripping. The compulsive energy that he demonstrated eventually came into very sharp contrast with another man who I, studied very intensively, I always found it mysterious that Ernest Shackleton, great explorer, was actually more celebrated than Nansen, Amundsen or any of the people that had discovered the Poles. And the reason I believe he was celebrated and held even in higher esteem was because he didn't pursue the goals. He preserved the conservation of life. In 2003, I did a sailing expedition to South Georgia Island and we studied Shackleton. We read all of his documents and the biographies and the journals of the people who sailed with him. And now there are a lot of elements to the story. The one mystery to me was how can a man be in the Antarctic in a wreckage with 29 other people and get them to put their heart in his hands in order to feel safe. When you're that afraid and you're starving, what was it about Shackleton? And without going into it in great length, the contrast between Shackleton and the Captain Ahab you just saw became apparent to me when I read his book, The Heart of the Antarctic. Before his famous expedition, where 29 people's lives were all saved through all kinds of heroism machinations, he had gone to Antarctica. He had been embarrassed when he had gone there with Scott because Scott's expedition failed and he blamed it on Shackleton's illness. But Shackleton went back and he was 81 miles from the South Pole leading an expedition where he could have discovered the South Pole, and in his journals he wrote, you and I, meaning his friend Tom Crean, who was a big physical guy, and the other two are here. We could walk the 162 miles and discover the South Pole, but by the time we did, the other two would perish. We're going home. He walked away from discovering the South Pole. I'm a, Very fun. you'll find out in a little bit about blues music. My name's Robert Johnson and there's a song called Crossroads. This guy was at the crossroads and he chose human life over goals, accomplishments, whatever you want to call them. And I think he stands in very marked contrast to Herman Melville's character. But it does illustrate for me some of the kind of tensions that exist within the realm of economics. So we should turn a little bit to what this sailor thinks as he heads out to sea is wrong with economics. And I think the answer is when you go offshore, you know you don't know where you're going. And economists pretend that the the future is certain and known and I think that's absurd. One of the big critics of economics was a Stanford University professor, professor Rene Girard, who has a lot of, uh, you might call, energy related to the intersection between analytic thought, intellectual life, and, and spiritual life. When I criticize economics, I, almost talk, I always talk about how they make up these fictions. It's not known well that Jeremy Bentham wrote a book called The Theory of Fictions. But my favorite title for the economics profession comes from a New Yorker article by George Trow called Within the Context of No Context. They act like the world is a neutral fair whiteboard upon which you place your life and the outcome is a verdict on your value and your worth. I think that is rather childish and naive as a way to formulate economics. This uh, James Buchan is a literary figure in Scotland. We did a conference a year or so ago. Uh, it was last October, about eleven months ago, I guess, uh, on Adam Smith, and you'll see some very interesting surprises about the father of economics as we proceed. Perhaps my favorite economist, and the one who uh, I think is most underrecognized, is a man named Frank Knight. He is known for the notion, what they call radical uncertainty, the unknown unknowns. And I think this little statement is quite interesting about uh, how people exercise what you might call scientific method on economics in an unscientific way. And they, uh, let's say, leave their graduate students perplexed by trying to explain change by explaining it away. The armor that economics and economic scientists use now has changed in some form to be evidence-based. And while I'm all for pursuing things quantitatively, separating the wheat from the chaff through sense of proportion, the idea that the facts speak for themselves is, is silly, and E.H. Carr wrote a book, a famous British historian, called What Is History? And i always loved this last line, facts are like sacks, you gotta put something in or they won't stand up. This was written in 1922 by H.L. Mencken, who's a curmudgeon based in Baltimore in the United States, who talked about the dances that economists do and how would I say, resorting to the tantalization of novelty and uh, arcaneness and being obscure. He also talks later about how economists are not free because they understand when they have a vision how powerful people might react to that vision. And as my good friend Jillian Tett taught me at the outset of INET, she's a cultural anthropologist, PhD, She said, if you want to study your mission, Robert, what you have to do is study the silences, because what's not said reveals the roadmap of power. So as you walk into, how would I say, literary and artistic forms of seeing the world, you move out of some of these, uh, what you might call rather simplistic deterministic ways of seeing. This I particularly like. Margaret Atwood, a Canadian author who is a friend of mine, uh, I think has has a very vivid perspective. This was used in a documentary by a woman named Sarah Polly called Stories We Tell, which was about discovering her past, and I don't want to betray the story, I encourage you to watch it, because she found out her past didn't look anything like she thought when she went back to it in in very important ways. Uh, Buchan talks about the notion of the invisible hand, this ordering and organizing principle, and talks about and quotes Adam Smith frequently, but seeing that the invisible hand is, is the product of a yearning for coherence, or as he called it, the father in a fatherless world. By the way, Adam Smith's father died uh, when he was an infant. Peter Brzezinski gave this speech in 2010 at the Council on Foreign Relations. The G7 world run by essentially white men of similar philosophic and religious traditions in the North Atlantic had given way to the G20 where many more philosophical and religious perspectives, different sense of right and wrong, had to be incorporated to develop any kind of unity or order. At the same time Brzezinski cited the financial crisis of 2008, and emphasized how it essentially alerted everyone to the importance of politics. Adam Smith was a little bit aware about the intersection between Croesus and the Emperor in his day, and uh, he had very, very strong ideas about who should make the rules to enforce, how would I say, force society, the direction that commerce could take. Mr. Trump has some thoughts about experts as well. Uh, this is a quote from him on the campaign trail. But when we look at financial deregulation, and the cover of Time Magazine, the Committee to Save the World, or before that, the Vietnam War, and the Best and the Brightest, I'm not always on the same team with Mr. Trump, but uh, I would say there there is a basis for this questioning. By the way, in, in my own observing of this conference, I have experienced quite a bit of discomfort at this stage in the conversation, belittling populism. I believe populism is the byproduct of what we are now calling populism is the byproduct of failed representation. And young voices, who perhaps came through a Bernie Sanders or others, are trying to reinvigorate and reform representation. I don't quarrel with the notion that populism at the end of the day can be a disease. We go from the wisdom of crowds in democracy to the madness of crowds and we've seen very tangible episodes but I think we need to channel our criticism in support of greater representation, or we're just gonna keep smashing against the kind of rocks that we have been in recent years. The, uh, this was a surprising quote when I was preparing this. I ran across an old paper called International Trade for a Rich Country that Paul Samuelson, uh, how we say, brought forth. He was talking at the time about how the Americans were so dominant in setting the international rules for trade, and he was quite uh, sure that they were not, what you might call persuading or building confidence and strength in the multilateral system in the way the Americans were behaving at the time. And he also saw that with the growth of emerging markets and recovery of Japan and uh, other places after the Second World War well underway, it was gonna be a rough ride for the American population. Perhaps the finest essay that I've read since I started the Institute for New Economic Thinking in uh, 2009 is an essay in 2011 by a man named Enrique Martinez Celaya. He was an astrophysicist who became an artist and the name of the essay, which was delivered in Nebraska in the United States, is called "The Prophet." You will see various thoughts of his uh, throughout this presentation. So now we talk about how do we address this challenge? How do we how do we contribute to the healing? How do we not be overcome by despondency? By the way, this is Sir Francis Chichester going around Cape Horn when he was 69 years old alone on a circumnavigation. (laughs) And uh, I thought that was a good background picture for the daunting challenge that we face. Stephen Toleman described another crossroads in his book, Cosmopolis, and I think, uh, how would I say, it inspired me to think about how to move out from this difficult situation. Where I have a very hard time with economics and quantitative science is their, uh, quantitative science used within economics is their aversion to emotion. And I think it's fascinating that if you're looking at the, what you might call foundation stones of modern economics, that there's so much appeal to the emotion, and particularly Adam Smith uh, was quite sensitive to that, what he called, the presumption that commonly attends science. Muriel Rukeyser wrote a fantastic book called The Life of Poetry, and the first part of the book is called The Resistances, meaning when people are emotionally locked up, Can they come together around poetry, feel and learn? It it, it reminds me of people who are scoffing at or or averse to contemplation. Smith's earlier book, the one he considered his great, even greater book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, talked about right and wrong as being determined by emotion, rather than reason, and how they came to feel as such. He wrote, when, when Adam Smith died, he had these two books, Theory of Moral Sentiments, Wealth of Nations. There were a handful of op-eds and so forth. He had 18 and a half volumes that he ordered burned 30 days before he died, and he kept two articles. One was called On the Imitative Arts, which was a discussion of music, theater, painting, and so forth. And the other was called The History of Astronomy. And I, urge, I encourage you all to read that, especially if you've read Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Because where Smith takes you is, there isn't a known truth where, which you might call in a Darwinistic metaphor, you're weeding out the wrong with the right. That there was a competition for emotional gratification, elegance, simplicity, novelty, and in his mind, what was winning in astronomy, which was largely an unprovable thing at the time, had very little correlation to, to the truth. And it's a fascinating essay. So as we talk about how to make a difference in this tumultuous environment, in this emotional environment, I always go back to Duke Ellington's famous comment. And, uh, He says you've got to find a way of saying it without saying it. The use of poetics and indirection is something that Celaya devoted his life to. As he calls it, he looked for the whisper of order of things that dismantle consciousness and suggest his place in the world. The whisper of order of things is not meaning, but it offers a point of reference. It has nothing to do with the realm of perceptions. I'll I'll send you each the essay if you'd like. I'll use a simple illustrative case in my own life. My father was very enamored of Frank Sinatra. I think my mom was too. That's one of the few things they really agreed on. (laughs) Frank Sinatra as a popular singer was a crooner, was a good time guy, come fly with me. You make me feel so young, the way you look tonight. Strangers in the night, all of me but he had a second person as an actor. Frank Sinatra, the actor, always played people on the down and out, on the edge, aware of the corruption, aware of his complicity in the corruption, and Michael Ventura, who I think wrote the best biography, describes this. He talks about having known the mobsters, known the inner workings underneath the veneer, and that he was part of that as a successful musician, working very closely with organized crime. But he didn't acquiesce to it. He found ways, Duke Ellington, of saying it without saying it, of portraying these characters in movies, many of which he constructed, or modified the original treatment, and. I think Frank Sinatra actually was a much greater artist than I ever gave him credit for. Salaya again comes back and talks about this artistic impulse is not in a place of stability that one has to, you might call, embrace the instability. And Jung, adds a very famous quote to our conversation. Paradox is one of our most valuable spiritual possessions, while uniformity of meaning is a sign of weakness. Try that out on a, on a like put that on a general exam for a PhD student in economics, and he would think his professor had flipped out. <laughs> Thomas Merton spoke, and I, I'll come back to, concerned about false prophets, and This, I'm gonna move towards contemplation through the notion of identity. And the question at some level is, these people who become magnetic leading figures, what it is they're trying to create for themselves and what role contemplation can play in that. Here's Celias talking about the narcissistic nature of the uh, preoccupation with self, and and he goes deeply into, there's a very dangerous terrain between actually being prophetic in service to society and being essentially uh, indulging one's own ego. And he talks about the relationship between faith and his prophetic mission and art. And I love this last sentence, when faith and revelation are not present, art is not present, even if the activity seems artistic. Turn on Spotify on your cell phone today and you can find a whole lot of that last sentence. Perhaps the person, In 2015, a friend of mine named Ed Pavlich gave me a manuscript of a book he wrote. It's called, Who Can Afford to Improvise? I have always felt that James Baldwin was one of the great thinkers that I've ever encountered. And in this book, he spoke of his relationship to music. And what Baldwin, somewhat like Duke Ellington, felt is that you had to say it without saying it you had to use indirection he resorted to poetics and what happened in his life is he had been debating people like Robert Kennedy then Attorney General and others and he came home from these debates talked to his brother my friend Pavlich has this correspondence uh, has been given access to it and he would say I win these debates. I'm a great stiletto artist. I'm in all the top magazines. I go to the parties in Manhattan, and I'm not making any difference at all. Playing, jousting with logic and tools and rhetoric wasn't getting him where he wanted to go, and it was creating a tremendous amount of hostility toward him. This is in the boiling period of this early civil rights movement. Baldwin was working on a film about the life of Malcolm X in Los Angeles and listened to this record that I just played for you called I Wonder by Aretha Franklin from a record called, an album called Aretha Arrives. And he had an epiphany. He talks, as he says here, that she was speaking to the people and the person at the same time. That she was penetrating where it got to your heart but it could enlarge to the scope of society. He went to talk to Ray Charles about this. They composed something together. They took it to the Newport, or me, yeah, Newport Jazz Festival, New York session at Carnegie Hall. He read an oration in between songs by Ray Charles which were thematically chosen, uh, chosen or composed together. And the critics went out and tortured James Baldwin and they loved Ray Charles and they essentially had the same message so he became baldwin became very interested in how we could
1: Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem
0: how we could make at this
1: the house difference of two sisters, who are friends of his martha and mary we're told that martha sees him coming and she comes out of the house to greet him Mary, her sister, sits at his feet and stays there, listening to his words. So you can see the distinction in this few words between the two sisters. Martha, the active, proactive one, she sees him coming down the road, she runs out of the house, greets him, and, and when he comes in, Mary just sits at his feet, quietly listening to what he's saying. Then we're told that Martha becomes distracted by her many tasks. That's all it says. It doesn't say why she becomes distracted. She doesn't say what her tasks are. But you could imagine that she wants to put on a nice meal with Jesus and his unexpected 12 guests. Then the microwave breaks down. And she discovers she doesn't have any sort of bread. We live in an age of chronic distraction. Our level of attention is now down to eight seconds. So we're told, which is getting perilously close to the attention span of a goldfish, which is ten seconds. So Martha becomes distracted and then she comes And she says to Jesus, Lord, don't you see I'm doing all this work by myself? Tell her to give me a hand. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever felt like that? It's all on you. Nobody's helping you. What is she showing the symptoms of? The modern disease. Every culture in the world. Stress. Martha's probably a very active person in heaven, so we should give her another job. We should make the patron saint of stress. Because we know that stress is the great destabilizer, both of individuals and of organizations. Organizations spend millions, maybe more, on dealing with stress. National health systems around the world are more and more acutely conscious of stress as the primary strain on their resources. So she showed all the symptoms of stress. So we didn't invent stress, but we certainly specialized in it. And how does Jesus respond? Martha, Martha, he says, in a friendly way. He calls her back to herself. That's the first thing we have to do when we're stressed out, is to come back to ourselves. That's what meditation is about simply reconnecting to your own centre. Martha, Martha, you are worrying and anxious about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. And then he says, Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken away from her. That's the end of the story. So we don't know how Martha reacted.
0: I had the good fortune of being in Singapore in January a couple of years ago and listening to one Lawrence Freeman discuss the attention span of goldfish <laughs> and uh, at that time I was reading the book, the scroll which I put before you is by Frischoff, is called The Transfiguration of Man and uh, we'll come back to this. Gentleman Freeman and uh, his influence in a couple of moments.
2: Yeah, he said, I met him in Nigeria in 1977. He said, I want to tell you one thing. He said, the first thing that changed is the music, because music is the voice of God, He said, music was our first language. We think French or English or Arabic or Spanish was our language. If the time we didn't have those languages. The language was music, because we listened to the music of birds. We listened to the music of Mother Nature, we listened to the wind, the sound of thunder. So he says, when you have ordinary music, you're going to have ordinary times. yeah now I'll never forget that. Yeah. And when you have creative music, you have creative times. Because music, you can't see music, you can't touch music. Music is the king of the arts, you see. And so, music is everywhere, but we say that we tend to take music for granted. But imagine our planet without music, if you did, because all people have that music.
0: That's uh, Randy Weston, who died uh, August 30th at age 92, and was one of the greatest explorers of the African musical tradition that that I've ever encountered. Uh, The story of Mary and Martha that Lawrence was telling, uh, brings to mind a series of things, brought to mind as I heard him a series of things, including a project that I'm currently working on in relation to uh, Aretha Franklin's greatest album in my view, Amazing Grace. And she sang the song, Mary, Don't You Weep. And I thought uh, it was a very good example of Randy Weston's sensing a creative time in music. As a small uh, advertisement, tonight after the musical performance here, I would be happy to screen it's a 90-minute movie uh, of the entire thing. It'll be released to the world probably in December of this year in celebration of Aretha's life, but uh, uh, I, I'll be happy to, uh, to put it up here. So I'll hang around and see if any of you night owls are, uh, are interested. I'm going to go to a place now that's a little harder to digest, but it's also very musical. And I'll start with a certain mystery that comes from a friend of mine who, uh, who inspired me in the realm of making music named James Cohn. did you catch that nobody knows the trouble I've seen nobody knows my sorrow glory hallelujah what are those phrases doing in the same song This is one of the mysteries that I think takes me through music towards contemplation. And James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, is probably the greatest book of guidance that I've ever come across for the social challenges that I think we all face. He studies as he's 49 years, he passed away this summer, but he uh, was 49 years a professor at the Union Theological Seminary, famous for black theology. He wrote this book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, about the relationship in this metaphorical sense between crucifixion and lynching. He criticizes vehemently Reinhold Niebuhr, who was a pillar of the Union Theological Seminary, for having been completely mute while artists and essayists were drawing the analogy, the parallel in visual and written art continuously. It was a bit of the indictment of experts. But what he did in the book was not finger-pointing, at the experts, not even scolding them for their failings, just pointing out that they don't play that role. And the people who do play that role are the people who are suffering, the people who get to a place where what an economist would call rational contemplation have absolutely no basis for doing what they do other than they can't go on living in this undignified way and they create the momentum for change. And black women who saw their husbands and sons being lynched, black women who when they complained to the law enforcement about this at these essentially Sunday parties in the southern United States, and people did celebrate the lynchings, these women who complained were poured over with gasoline and lit on fire or hung themselves but they did persevere. Fannie Lou Hamer, Ida Wells are the studies that he puts into the book and he talks about how when things reach a point of intolerability they become so painful that people are transformed and they rise above themselves. So as Uh, How I say the quote says, the cross is a paradoxical religious symbol. It inverts the the world's value system with the news that hope comes by way of defeat. Suffering and death do not have the last word, and the last shall be first and the first last. This is what I I skipped over because of time, but the blues impulse. The way I put it is, I'm miserable. I don't know how to go on. I'm so miserable, I don't know how to go on. I'm so miserable, I don't know how to go on. Let's get back to work. The blues impulse is best, I think the best illustration of it uh, is uh, trouble in mind. Trouble in mind, I'm blue. But I won't be blue always, because the sun's gonna shine again in my back door someday. That mindset is what gets us through times like this. It's not intellectual jousting. It's a much more powerful place. And the question is how does Marian Martha's brother Lazarus in economics get resurrected? One of my least favorite journalists wrote these extraordinary words, and the man who introduced me to Lawrence, Philip Hildebrand, sent them to me when I was sitting on stage getting ready to close a conference in Toronto. I think the uh, notion, which David Brooks captures very nicely, that something different happens through suffering is very, very powerful. And it's not in any rational optimizing model in economics that I know of. Again, Mariel Rukeyser, The Life of Poetry. She talks about how people can come together. Poetry provides a meeting place. And she doesn't rule out scientists. And there's always exceptions that prove the rule. We saw an excellent discussion yesterday. But the idea that Richard Feynman proposed or or enunciated about uncertainty being a fundamental part of our inner nature is very important. And uh, he said that we must always remain uncertain. It's the most scientific way of progressing. Who was it, I think, Sean, you brought up uh, Kierkegaard, so I thought I'd throw a little of that into the soup and uh, bring my man, Saleya back. And he talks now about the urgency, the prophetic. uh, They're not just speaking and acting. They've got to bring something forward, and they feel a sense of urgency that I sense may be correlated with those people who are reacting to suffering. There is a very real danger of how would I say, self-promoted prophets and heroes, and uh, Saleh goes into some of the determinations of, uh, in his mind, what constitutes the type of devotion and engagement necessary. So now I come to the question that I think is how would I say, what is most compelling, what's helped me in my own life, and what's most germane to the concerns of your group. It seems to me like I spent about 57 years missing the point. And it was, as Ramana Maharishi says, uh, hiding in plain sight right there, like it's always been here and now. And I, I have a, how would I say, a propensity to laugh at myself a little bit. And what I feel about contemplation and where it is most powerful, I, I remember Teresa talking yesterday about belonging. And the bird that went off inside my head is belonging to what? Belonging to whom? Belonging to serve, belonging because I need. Belonging because of my weakness. I think all of these things are dimensions of it. But to me, contemplation, going to that place that St. Paul describes so powerfully in so many different letters, is the way you fortify yourself to become independent, to become capable of providing service. To become capable when the odds are awful, but you have to proceed because you can't live with yourself and maintain dignity, contemplation and the community that comes from that are the fuel that allow you to unhinge they allow the artist to become visionary, prophetic, and helpful. And it's the egocentric that, how would I say, pulls you off course, that's like the siren song of temptation. talks of the experience of essential loneliness is our way to finding ourselves in that common ground. And this one, I just had a good laugh because I had pulled this up for this presentation and then saw it in your program. So I didn't take it out because I just wanted to laugh with you. A Asalaya, again, very, very sensitive to the the attractions of the ego to be calling himself the artist and prophet as distinct from the real life work. And uh, Kenneth Rexroth, a a West Coast poet in the United States, also has had visions of this mission. And uh, the role of faith in silencing the noise is something I hear from Father Lawrence in many of our conversations. So I'll come to a little bit of my work here because it relates to identity. I once went to a conference related to my children then in preschool education, and I saw a man, Kenneth Robinson, speaking about education. And he made the statement, Imagination is plentiful, everyone's got one, but creativity is an act of will. And at the cocktail party afterwards, I was talking to him about my work and he says, so your job is to diminish how much will it takes to be an economist who is creative and in service of society. I thought that, I, I felt like somebody gave me my marching orders through him that day. This is uh, Adam Smith's discussion of the kind of resistance that accrues at universities after a rather turbulent tour of Oxford in his own life. (laughs) So I'm gonna come to our work, which is I think we fund research, we hold convenings, we amplify, how do I say, we play offense with the good guys. But the peer-reviewed journals in economics stink. There is cronyism, and there is constriction of the issue space, and young people who have a tremendous awareness, as you've talked about throughout this conference, of the challenges of today have to amount in enormous will, not unlike Fannie Lou Hamer and I'm a well, Ida Wells, but I want to work to help make it better for them, and I'm very fortunate that four Nobel laureates in economics, George Akerlof, uh, Angus Deaton, James Heckman, and Lars Hansen, and the fifth who joined them, a professor from MIT, Drew Fudenberg, have taken on the profession. They're doing serious, deep, statistical, quantitative analysis and codifying all of these things, and we're publishing them. I just, in Germany, in the handoff between Germany and Argentina, was able to give a briefing to the G20 about how they're being disserved and uh, so I wanted to celebrate them for about 20 seconds. And I also want to thank Michael Eisen, who was one of the three founders of the Public Library of Science, who stopped by my office to say, I've been doing all this work on peer-reviewed journals in the medical sciences and in uh, biology. And everybody who I confront says, I know we're really bad, but you should see economics. It's much worse. <laughs> that, how would they say, it's like forbidden fruit. I had to go after it after I heard that. So now I'm gonna, how I say, bring you back to Detroit.
1: Great you And
0: hear. to Lawrence. So do you think that listening to a great work of art, like Be
1: My No Mass or Beethoven, Violin and do you think that that makes people better? And he thought about it for a while and he said, no. <laughs> but he said, you're well, less likely to do something terrible within an hour or two of listening to it. Which is perhaps why Confucius said that the wise person listens to four hours of music a
0: day. Notice my scratch out there. That's the last thing I did before this talk today. (laughs) So now I am going to take you to Detroit and Aretha Franklin's funeral. I got caught on national television. I got flooded on Twitter and everything else. But I did wanna not come here and talk to you for over an hour about this, my perspective, without letting you know one thing. I'm going to tell you my most personal story as I was putting this together I was describing to my wife who is a mind scientist who works on the healing of racial and gender divides for corporations all over the world governments and her sense of indirection through the way the brain operates in neuroscience is is a very great teacher to me so I'm trying out my material in the kitchen. And my five-year-old daughter walks in and she looks at me and she says, well, daddy, you have to listen to the song, know who you are. And I said, what's that? She said, daddy, it's from Moana. You took me to the movie. So she says, get your iPhone. (laughs) And she goes out, she's clever at five. She gets out, pulls up Spotify and she pulls up a song which kind of reminds me of all this tug of identity and, and what the mission is. This is a picture from a portrait related to this uh, Homer's Odyssey, I told you I was a sailor, and the Siren Songs of Temptation. And where Moana is at this stage, which is really the climax of the film, is that she is the child who was chosen by the spirits as their Uh, Polynesian society is dying because a trickster had plucked the heart out of the goddess in the society and it is withering and the trickster has run off and the goddess of prosperity has become a fire goddess of lava and she has the heart she's found it and has to go put it back in and so she comes up to this heinous creature throughout her life that she has despised has made her afraid, has torn up her society. And she sings a song. Look at these words, I have made an effort to find you, and I have studied who you are, you matter. Someone has injured you, and I'm aware of that, but that injury is not to be afraid of or demonized. It doesn't define you, and I can sense, I know that's not who you are. But the most important line in the entire song is the last one, you know who you are. And I think, for me, it is through contemplation that I prepare myself to be able to go to those fire goddesses of economics and not blink and not be afraid to express caring and to see the better side of them. When I was sailing down to Shackleton, at the end of it, we went to a place called Albatross Island. And I walked up onto the island with some of my crew, and I found, A handful of birds. No people are allowed to go there. I think three boats in the last 16 months had gone to this island. And as I sat down, I put my hand out and the bird that you see came up and took my glove off. And then it turned and it sat next to me. And I sat and I pet its back and I cried. And the voice inside of me said, I had been on this island not knowing why I was going in search of understanding of Shackleton, but my voice inside said, you can go home now. And I waited for one day, because three of my crew had to stay on the boat while the six of us were out, I wanted them to have the experience of the island. So after one day, and they had a similarly powerful experience with the birds, we all embarked, and we went through a storm in the Antarctic Ocean, so about 70 mile an hour winds, and I was sitting there and the waves were crashing, and all I could think of is, I can go home now. But I don't know where home is. And at some level, I realized when I'm back in Detroit, that that's not home. My home is everywhere I am with people like you trying to make a difference. My home isn't geographic. One more thing. Lawrence, you asked for haikus. On the night in Brazil, when I proposed to my wife, she composed a haiku. And I called her today and she sent it to me.